Okay, it's definitely recording. So should we try to not talk over each other? <laughs> yeah, we should try. I mean, good luck. We should always yes. try not to talk over each other. Okay, so let me just say a few things. I'm very nervous about this mm -hmm. in a way that I am not usually nervous about this. And uh, uh, let's get uh, let's get our nervousness out. Okay. Okay. We can either cut this or not. So the thing that I'm most nervous about is not that we one of us will say something that we don't want to say. I'm not actually that nervous about that. I've been looking forward to this for so yeah. long. We've had basically. I, I don't know, a hundred commonplace conversations by which I mean talking about like art and our real lives and our friendship and, you know, what is an artist and like what is genre and like all the things that I want to talk about on commonplace mm -hmm. all the time, but we haven't recorded those. Correct. And so my biggest worry is that it will be over <laughs> <laughs> and we'll both be like, but we didn't, that yeah. wasn't what I... And so I think it's good to like say that right out there. Yeah, no, I think that I know the depth of our conversations and I know that a one hour segment of them can't do what they do. Right. It's funny. It's sort of like, like when I teach picture book writing, I teach, I teach away from what you might think of as like craft or quality where like, like it tends to be about how like not to develop a character or how not to try to tell a message or a theme or how like that sort of, because there just isn't the space in a picture book to do that. Right. Oh so our, maybe we're having a so picture maybe, book. Yes. So we're having a picture book, right? <laughs> this is the picture book version right. of the novel that is 15 years of conversation. Right. Well, so that's, that's like, first of all, a perfect place to start mm -hmm. because you're the first person that I've had on commonplace who is, primarily you're not the first person who's written a picture book mm -hmm. on commonplace um but you're the first person who's primarily known for being a ya author and a picture book author or kid lit what is your preferred i don't actually write young adult um there's a line between middle grade and young adult okay but nobody else needs to like it's not important to me really oh okay it's if it's important then <laughs> i'd like to call you by the right thing i would say i write books for young readers or i write books for children long as there is life, that boy should come back home, drive daggers through the night. But the candle burns so lonely, and the way it fills this room, makes me want to call up Billy, meet him somewhere dark and soon. And I should sit on this front porch, and watch the spring fall. Snow keeps on breaking the trees When these branches get heavy Just like this here song I like singing In some other key Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Commonplace with my dear friend Laurel Snyder, who writes books for children. Laurel Snyder is the author of eight novels for children, including, most recently, The Witch of Woodland, My Jasper June, and Orphan Island. 
as well as many picture books, including The Charlie and Mouse Books with Emily Hughes, Endlessly Ever After with Dan Suntat, Bruce Springsteen, A Little Golden Biography with Jeffrey Ebeler, and Swan, The Life and Dance of Anna Pavlova with Julie Morstad. Laurel has written two collections of poems, Daphne and Jim, A Choose-Your-Own-Adventure Biography in Verse, and The Myth of Simple Machines. She's also edited an anthology of nonfiction, Half-Life, Jewish Tales from Interfaith Homes. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a former Michener Engel Fellow, Laurel has published work in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Utney Reader, the Chicago Sun-Times, and elsewhere. She teaches in the MFAC program at Hamline University. A Baltimore native, Laurel lives in Atlanta with her family. Laurel and I recorded the conversation you're about to hear in my home in New York City at the end of May 2023. She was staying with me for four nights while attending several literary events. It's always enormous fun having Laurel stay with me, and it was delightful to finally record a conversation with her. We've been having conversations about art and life for almost 20 years. In this conversation, we talk about poetry, children's books, the relationship between poetry and picture books, money, Iowa, music, the effect of necessity, chance, and advice from our mentors on each of our careers, and much more. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a bundle of Laurel Snyder's books for children, courtesy of Chronicle Books or Walden Pond Press. Many thanks to Chronicle for copies of the Charlie and Mouse books illustrated by Emily Hughes and Walden Pond Press for The Witch of Woodland, My Jasper June, and Orphan Island. All patrons will get access to a really fun 35-minute audio extra. I recently hosted Laurel again for a few nights a few weeks ago. I compiled a list of the authors we mentioned in the episode, and I asked Laurel if we could pick a poem or prose excerpt from each author and read back and forth. So in this audio extra, you'll hear Laurel and I read poems or prose by Marvin Bell, Jory Graham, Gary Blankenberg, W.D. Snodgrass, Bradley Paul, Carl Sandburg, Theodore Redke, James Galvin, Edward Eager, and Thisbe Nissen. And you'll hear both of us try to read and mostly fail to read songs by Jason Isbell and talk about the fluid line between poems and songs. For the past six months, I've been gradually emptying a storage unit that mostly contains boxes of my mother's out-of-print picture books, which she bought 15 to 20 years ago from her publishers, rather than have them be remaindered. As an incentive to new and current patrons, I'm offering a bundle of books which will include a signed copy of The Slidey Diner by Laurel Snyder, courtesy of the author, as well as three picture books by Diane Wokstein. This offer is available to the first eight people who sign up to become new Commonplace patrons at the $10 or above tier, or to current Commonplace patrons who increase their current tier by $10. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no corporate funding, and no institutional support. It costs about twice as much to make Commonplace as I bring in through Patreon, and I don't pay myself. So I'll be doing a bit of fundraising in the next few months. Please bear with me. It's my least favorite part of making Commonplace. To become a Commonplace patron, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or 
commonpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for the Commonplace newsletter, which goes out once per episode and often has special notifications for upcoming events and classes. For example, I've decided to drop the price for the listener-only portion of upcoming Reading with Rachel sessions. Reading with Rachel meets online the last Tuesday of each month. November 28th, we will meet to discuss Tanya by Brenda Shaughnessy. November 26th, we'll discuss Milkweed Smithereens by Bernadette Mayer. January 30th will be The Ferguson Report by Nicole Seeley. February 27th, we'll read The Black Period by Hafiza Augustus Jeter. To find out more about Reading with Rachel or any of the other Commonplace School classes, please visit the Commonplace website or email rachel at commonplacepod.com. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Cheris Circle. Cheris Circle, Laurel Snyder's local feminist bookstore, works with artists, authors, and activists from across the South and around the world to bring innovative, thoughtful, and life-changing programming and events to feminist communities. Cheris is Metro Atlanta's only publicly accessible, dedicated feminist space, open seven days a week, 360 days a year. Cheris hosts more than 270 events a year, from writing groups to poetry open mics to children's story hours to yoga to intersectional strategy sessions. And now, here is my conversation with the brilliant, the quirky, the delightful Laurel Snyder. Uh, let's first do the thing that they do in bad sitcoms mm -hmm. where they're like, remember the time right. that, <laughs> that, they, that no one does in real life? Uh -huh. Okay, so you're Laurel Snyder. I am. And we met on the Poet Moms Listserv. That's correct. Which is a moderated, a lightly moderated <laughs> listserv started by Ariel Greenberg 18 years ago. It's crazy, yeah. I love the way I'm like, let's talk about you by starting by how we met, because your life started with our relationship. No. So... In some, way, yeah, in some ways, that's where these conversations begin with me. I would say you, our conversations are the center of how I have spent the last 18 years thinking about craft and all of the things. How, do you remember how we sort of became special poet mom friends? I don't. And I've tried actually to go back and find the very beginning, but I don't think I was using the same email or I don't know. Like I, I, there are a couple of relationships in my life where I've tried to go back and find the oldest email and it, it's clear to me that it's not going all the way back. Right. But Judah and Lewis were born at the same, but we were already on the list yep. at that point. Cause I, so I joined the list when my older son Mose was born. Mm -hmm. It's weird to call him my older son Mose, mm -hmm. but here we are. Uh, and then I feel like Lewis and Judah were born at the same time, basically. And it must have been there. I feel right. like it must have been. We'll come back to, to our relationship in a second. But tell the people listening where you're from. Sure. And some stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm from Baltimore. And I... Uh, and maybe maybe Iowa is part of how, yeah. like it maybe that like we had Lewis and Judah in common and we both had the Iowa experience and I was sort of still processing and letting go of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to remember who else on the list was Iowa at that point. In those early days, it may not have been, may have just been us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. 
But I'm from Baltimore. I went to college. I've been writing since I was a kid. I've been writing since I was about eight. That was all I ever wanted to be, really. Uh, and then I went to college in Tennessee, at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And then I went to the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop and for poetry. And then uh, I, I got married and moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a day job and had a baby very quickly. And so very suddenly my life, it was like I wasn't, you know, and that's Ginsburg, <laughs> listeners will know. And, and so my life sort of like, I had always been a writer, I had always wanted to be a writer, and then I had sort of, I, had, I hadn't really thought ahead beyond the writer's workshop. And then the writer's workshop was over, and real life began, and I was a mom and a wife and somebody who didn't know what to do next. I knew I wanted to keep writing, but poetry had become very hard for me. Right, and so I remember... Marvin Bell was an important teacher for both of us. I remember he was my first workshop teacher at Iowa, and I think I didn't realize that, the, like, I went there to study with Jory Graham, but right. then I was like, I didn't get to have Jory as my workshop teacher until later, which was actually so lucky for me. But I, I had a conference with Marvin, and he said to me, you don't blink very much. <laughs> Have you considered being on television? Oh, that's so funny. Now, am I right that Marvin suggested to you to to try other genres? I I think I always wanted to do everything. Mm. As a kid, wanted to write. I wanted to become rich and famous writing books and plays for children. That mm. was the plan. And then my best friend and I were going to buy a big mansion and live in it forever with all the dogs and cats in the city. Um, that was, I mean, that was the plan. We had this plan. We had a company we started called Sewell Larson. That was our, it was our Sewell Larson Incorporated. Nice. We were going to write books and plays together. So I had this sort of childhood dream of children's literature that I, I just thought of as books, right? Because that's what I read at that time. And then I got to high school and we had a creative writing teacher at my public high school in Maryland named Gary Blankenberg, mm. who, who had studied with Snodgrass and wrote and published in small press magazines and had his own little press, um, sort of, it, it, that was really important and formative for me. And, and because I think I was, there were poetry classes and not fiction classes, it, at that stage, it really became poetry. Mm. But it, 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 I mean, I had always loved poetry. I'd always read, read and memorized poetry. And, and then Gary, the teacher at my high school, sort of knew of this program at UTC and Kathy Wagner had gone down and Millie Bentley and Bradley Paul had gone down ahead of me mm. to this program in Chattanooga that had offered a big scholarship. And so basically there was sort of a, it was like I was riding a poetry pipeline and that sort of took me from Catonsville to Chattanooga to Iowa and kind of got me, and I knew about the workshop. I mean, so when I was 15 in Gary's class, I wanted to someday go to Iowa. And so I kind of rode that along. And the whole time... I still read children's books. I still read a lot of adult fiction, essay. Like, I just always liked lots of genres. And if I'm being honest, reading poetry was never... I love poems. I would get very attached to poetry in a really childlike way. Hmm. And it, I, I'm, I'm almost... I'm still scared. Even with you, even here in this moment, I'm scared <laughs> to say these words out loud. But, oh like, God. I liked, like, Carl Sandburg. Yeah. I liked Retke. Like, I liked... I wanted to read things that were much more traditional... And got to Iowa with no idea what postmodernism was, really. Because even in my college classes, I hadn't really read the things I was pretending I was reading because I was going home and reading novels. Mm -hmm. 
And so, I mean, I think in some ways, I'm not sure I've ever articulated this, but I think in some ways I was always pretending not to be a poet, but to be invested in the world of poetry and poetics and craft mm -hmm. and theory that I had no interest in reading. And I was sort of pretending to know who these, you know, people were that everyone was talking about. And so I got to Iowa and I had Jory first semester. I admire Jory. Mm -hmm. Still, I admired Jory then. It was not, I think, the right first workshop for me. There were also a couple of very strong personalities in that class and several people who had a book mm. deal in the first year. And so there was just this hierarchy immediately in place. And I had a very contrary response to that. Mm -hmm. And I got Marvin later. And he did help me pick up the pieces of sort of where my brain was in Iowa. But I got to Iowa, got very scared, was told by several other students that sort of I didn't know what I was talking about. And that shut me down. And I went and got a job at a diner called the Hamburgen Number no. 2, for anyone who's been to Iowa City, um, where I spent four years. Mm -hmm. And through that world, kind of met a bunch of musicians. And so I, was, I wasn't writing poems anymore because I was so scared of the poetry and, and not poetry, but the poetry world. I was still writing little bits and uh, around the edges, but I, it, it didn't feel comfortable about my place in that community. And all of the people that I knew through the diner were musicians. And so I started playing around with songwriting and lyric writing, and I made a little demo of country songs. And I also started doing some lyric essay stuff because there were people, John Degato was in the nonfiction program at that time. So I was sort of starting to be aware that there were other things out there. And then I think the order of things was that while I was then working in the restaurant after I'd graduated, I had started to write these country songs. So like my, my, like, my like senior reading mm -hmm. was actually a performance and I had several friends come up and accompany me and I just wanted to be honest about it. Yeah. And my last workshop at Iowa was with Jim Galvin mm. and I submitted a song instead of a poem what and it felt like say? this coming out moment of like I'm gonna claim that I don't really write poems right now this is what I do instead and he said he brought in so I had submitted this this sheet of lyrics and he brought a cassette player to class and played some old Greg Brown songs who was a local musician in Iowa and we taught who he had Greg had made this record uh, of the songs of innocence and experience by Blake which is actually a touchstone like that was an important book for me as a kid and he played these, these Greg Brown songs, and what he said is, he told some story about Tammy Wynette, and this, the line was, uh, stand by your man and tell the world you love him is not poetry until you add the steel guitar. Huh. And it created this whole idea in my head of like internal music and external music and how sort of how poetry and songwriting might relate to one another. And it really, I mean, it was a huge gift he gave me. Hmm. It didn't make my lyrics a poem, mm -hmm. but it gave me a way that wasn't binary to think about the things I was writing as something other than a poem or not a poem. Mm -hmm. Joe left me for Reno. I stood and watched him go In a quiet little flower dress a coat of falling snow The girls, you know the story I don't like being left Cause drinking leads to something Soft and sweet and wet And I should sit on this front porch And watch the spring fall But the snow keeps on breaking 
So that was graduation, and then I had this weird job um, working at the Annals of Otorhinolaryngology at the University Hospital that Joelle McSweeney actually had right before me that she had sort of passed along to me that was like almost like a little fellowship. And I would go to this office every day for hours a day, huh. and I just had time to kill. The internet wasn't as seductive at that point, and so I started writing this children's novel um, and, and playing around with picture books. And, and that, I don't remember exactly... I like have a way that I retell that story when I talk about it with kids. But it, somehow it's like something was wrong and I wasn't making work. And I went back to reading the children's books that I had loved mm. and realized that like, oh, oh, there is a thing I know and love deeply and can go back to. Mm-hmm. And the minute I did that, it became very clear that that was really that I had known when I was eight years old what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I had sort of used this process of education to kind of learn craft tools so that I could then go back and do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, and I'm yeah, sorry. And no. you had asked about Marvin. Yeah, yeah. And Marvin was the person who I felt safe once I had started writing these children's things and I took him some of them. I had graduated. He was still living in town. And I like went to his house and had like tea with him and Dorothy and shared these things with him. And he looked at them and was like, wow, mm. like I'm going to put you in touch with Jane Yolen. Oh, and wow. that's what happened. So he put me in touch with Jane Yolen who... It was very sweet uh-huh. and, and also honest about yeah. sort of the likelihood of publishing and how much money I could expect to make and things like that. But th- I think that was an important series of events, right? Like I got scared off of poetry. I met a bunch of people who made music. I tried that, didn't quite work. And then Galvin kind of gave me the permission to go and do other things. Mm-hmm. And then Marvin supported that and encouraged that and, and then directed me to the idea that there was a community out there. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, it's looking back at it, it's easy to see the map. Mm-hmm. And and then, so Jane wasn't, you know, I, I'm calling her Jane, like I know. Okay. I, so I know Jane, her now, it's uh, funny, yeah. I do. So, but Jane Yolen did not like take you under her no, wing. No, and, no, no, no. So, so how did you get, what was your first book that you published and how did, well, you had the, ch- you had a chapbook. I had a chapbook of poems and a, I'm trying to remember the order of things. I did a chapbook of poems while I was still trying to write for grownups. I did a chapbook of poems and then a book of poems that, uh, Reb published at No Tell Books. Mm-hmm. The chat, but the chapbook was a choose your own adventure yep. chapbook about my parents' courtship and marriage. And then I did a collection of poems with no tell books and then I did a collection of essays about intermarriage Mm -hmm. uh, with soft skull with Richard Nash and uh, Shanna Compton but those are all people I knew through the poetry world like all of that was sort of through poetry land Uh, the poet the children's books took a lot longer and and the first picture book was called inside the slidey diner that I wrote about the Hamburg Inn basically Mm -hmm. And the first novel is called Up and Down the Scratchy Mountains. They both came out in 2008, I think, which was eight years after I graduated. So this is a, a story that takes a while. Right. In 2008, yeah, Mose was born, must Mose have been was born, born in, in 2005. 2005. And okay. Lewis was born in 2007. Right. And that was the year, like, my life changed. Like, two, 2007, 2000, Mose was born, and then I had those poetry books and the essays come out, and Mose and I were on the road doing, like, you know, like Bowery Poetry Club or whatever, mm-hmm. like that, like right. that, that kind of stuff. KGB bar, like it, that was one world. Mm-hmm. And then Lewis was born in 2007. And then the novel and the picture book came out the next year. Mm-hmm. And, and by the time sort of Lewis was a year old, 
my life was just in a completely different place. And I had two kids and, and sort of the beginnings of a new career. Right. Although when I first met you, your career was really interesting because your husband was like a working guy. Yes. And you were, you were, you, no one would ever describe you as a stay at home mom, but you were with your kids a ton and you took your kids everywhere. Correct. And you, no, like I wore them for readings, like, like, right. It, right. And you, you were right. I mean, okay. So how many books have you published now? 30. Yeah, 30 Shit, books yeah. is a They're, lot, a, a lot, lot of, of books. But a lot of them are picture books, which is really like more like a poem, right? Kind of, but also not. We, we should talk about yeah. how picture books are and are not like poems. But I remember, well, your career has shifted a lot over the years and also the balance or, mm-hmm. you know, between family. I mean, in large part, you weren't making money in the beginning. Correct. And then you were. Correct. Right. What I often say to people is, like, if I had not been making so little at my day job when Mose was born, I would not have my career now. Mm. Mose required me to quit my job. Like, the childcare would have cost more. I was working for Hillel. I was working for a nonprofit. And I was making, like, you know, $700 every two weeks or something, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked at that and realized there's no way I can pay somebody to watch my child so that I can give up 60 hours a week to go work hard at this nonprofit job. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had to quit the job. And then the, the question became like, okay, so we're going to like go into this super reduced budget. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can to make money on the side, whether it means taking in other people's children, whether it means like, what I, like whatever I can do with a baby underfoot, I will do to make money to sort of balance things out a little bit. But as long as it doesn't cost me money, mm-hmm. I'm all right. And so that was when I went back to this old manuscript sort of box that I had of like things I had worked on in Iowa that were not poetry. I mean, I was also sending out poems and trying to still think of myself primarily as a poet, but I had this box of children's books that I had written, including this novel that had been rejected like literally 50 times. Hmm. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Like, and honestly, like what I often say is like babies are boring, like, like infants sleep a lot. (laughs) And I just, you know, didn't have anything to do. And so I thought, well, maybe there's money in the box. So in some ways, it's like if I hadn't stayed home, this is a very privileged thing to be able to say, but like if I hadn't stayed home, you know, and if Chris hadn't been willing to go to like $60 a week for groceries or whatever, you know, we went onto a really tight budget. Mm-hmm. But if if I hadn't stayed home, I would not have been able to invest the time in myself and my writing that I did. And once I had sold the first book and gotten an agent, then it was like, oh, this is a this is a job like this could potentially turn into a job and then Chris lost his job mm-hmm. and um, I had this new agent the first book hadn't come out yet but I, I remember like calling my agent and saying sort of my husband lost his job and I'm and I was pregnant with Lewis mm-hmm. my husband lost his job I'm pregnant and I need he was Chris was also in school at the time and we could buy health insurance through the school if I had eight thousand mm. dollars, so I called my agent and said, "I need eight thousand dollars to buy health insurance so that I can have this baby. How how can you help me with that?" And she was like, "That's not really what I do. Like, <laughs> what would you do for eight thousand dollars? Because I'd already sold the first book, and uh, the first, you know, and I had no record, I had no history. 
so I like had to dream up a project and she called the editor that had bought the first book and said, Laurel needs $8,000 <laughs> uh-huh. to have a baby. Can you buy another <laughs> book from her or something? I don't know. I, that conversation, it would be wonderful to be able to hear it now. Uh-huh. And my editor basically was like, let's, we'll figure this out. And th- together they figured out how to make, get, get me the money that I needed to have a baby. And then I had like a year to crank out another novel. And that was really the beginning of my, like, wow. it's like necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like now I have to write a second novel. I, it's taken me 10 years to write the first one. I don't know how I did it. Mm-hmm. I've never taken a fiction class. Mm-hmm. No idea what I'm doing. Okay. So wait, when, what was your, what was that novel? That was called Any Which Wall. And the reason I wrote, it was a, it's a tribute. It's a tribute to the Edward Eager books. And I thought I can, I can mimic, I can mimic half magic. I'll just take it apart and I'll put it back together again with contemporary kids Mm -hmm. and like that I can do in a year, I think. And somehow that happened. Wow. Okay. So this is great because I would say of the things that we talk about, money is in the top three Mm -hmm. and not just money, but like the relationship between art and money and structure and money and structure and art and necessity and, priorities and an audience an audience yeah yeah this is the question that I'm having trouble answering I mean asking (laughs) and it just keeps coming up and I'm just going to say it this way and then I'm going to restate it in a nicer way okay okay Josh which I (laughs) (laughs) you know in some ways his story was very similar to yours in the sense that um he grew up just loving reading and and particularly loving a certain kind of book for him it was not exact it wasn't the Edward Eager books it was these kind of like sci-fi mm-hmm. you know um Tarzan yep. um you know serial novel and he just i mean mm-hmm. that was like the golden age of literature for him and so we moved to Iowa and I was in the workshop and he was not. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting, it wasn't like he had always wanted to be a writer, but he had, I don't think he'd always wanted to necessarily be anything, but reading was always his deepest passion and books. And then he got that job at Scattergood Friends School because we literally, I also applied for a job at Scattergood Friends School. We literally looked in the yellow pages Mm -hmm. under education because he had no idea what to do. Totally forgot about that. Yeah. And, and, and we were like, well, what do you know how to do? Nothing. You've gone to school. So, and you like school and you're good at school. Right. Um, and he had, he had gotten like a temporary job working for these three older women, a Scandinavian publishing company Mm -hmm. where they published Scandinavian cookbooks okay. because there's a large Scandinavian population in Iowa and right. in the Midwest. And he got free lunch and like minimal amount of money. And he would go there with him and these three old ladies and have like jello salad for lunch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like his big plan uh-huh. to like make a mark at this job was he was going to try to get these cookbooks, which were, index card size with spiral tops. Right. He was going to try to convince all the high V's to put these like a rack with yep. the with the cookbooks in the cooking it's not section. A bad idea. Right. 
Anyway, um, at the very last minute, somebody in August, in like late August, somebody was sick and they needed a teacher and he ended up, you know, uh, teaching at Scattergood for two years and hadn't really been interested in teaching. Right. But loved reading. And so then he applied to get a PhD and, you know, ended up going to Columbia. But his real passion mm-hmm was reading, not writing critical stuff. And he didn't really want to go on the job market. So after he, you know, while he was writing his his dissertation, and then even more so afterwards, he started writing all of these, I would call them YA, you know, some middle grade, but YA um, books. And he wrote like eight, eight, at least eight, Full yeah, manuscripts, had an agent and then had a different agent and then had a different agent and then had a different agent. And ultimately, it was just miserable. Mm-hmm. And we had kids by then. And so I guess, and we can keep this in because it's not mean. It's it, it it's just ultimately he, it was not a good life for him. Mm-hmm. It was, and I, it's never been and then he transitioned to teaching, which I think was really, in the beginning, so much grief and grieving for him that he, I think he really, at that point, he really wanted to be a writer. And so to transition into to teaching felt like a failure to him, yeah. even though he is, this is exactly there are like the job big, he should be, there he are should like, have. There are three different, there are probably more, but there are at least three differences in the story Mm -hmm. and one is that I was and I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this maybe um one is that I'm a woman yes and I wanted to stay home with my children Mm -hmm. and I wanted to nurse my children and I wanted to sleep with my like I wanted my life to be about the babies I didn't want to let go of my writer self but by no means was being a writer more important to me than being a mom yep I felt like the writing facilitated the staying home and the staying home facilitated the writing so the and it's the most paired thing that's ever happened in my life that those two things happened simultaneously and felt like they reinforced each other and I I used to say to people all the time like I feel so lucky because I don't have that feeling that I'm just like that feeling that friends would describe to me that they had given up their careers they were just a mom Mm -hmm. and that that did not feel like enough nor did I have a feeling that sort of I wasn't I wasn't having kids and I wasn't starting my family. So I feel like those two things went together. That's one thing. The second thing is that I wasn't living in New York. Mm. And we were living in Atlanta at a moment where, I mean, Lewis was born in 2007. The world fell apart in 2008, which was terrible and made things very hard. My husband lost his job. But we were also paying like $900 a month in mortgage. Mm-hmm. And we I could walk to the grocery store if I needed to. And we could live on. I mean, we turned off the internet. We turned, you know, we didn't have the internet yet, but we like turned off the cable TV and turned off the air conditioning. And we were able to reduce our lives in a way that I think would not have been possible. If Josh had said, I want to stay home and write and not make any money. It like it, New York's just a different lifestyle and world. Yeah. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is I didn't want to be an author. That wasn't my goal. I was just a writer who'd gotten up and written every day since I was eight years old. I got very, very lucky that I stumbled into good fortune. And I'm, I am somebody who sort of, my, my, the, one of my early publishers, Richard Nash at Soft School, once asked me, I, you know, I'd gotten some article you know, reviewed or something had happened. And he said, why do people do things for you? 
And I said, because I ask them. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I hope not in an obnoxious way, but I feel like I'm somebody who tries the doorknob. Mm-hmm. It, it, so there's that, but it was never, I never sought to be an author. I wanted to be a writer. And at some point it became real to me that, that like to have a career as a writer meant I had to make money out of it or, or get a teaching job out of it. Or like mm-hmm. there had to be some way that this sustained itself. But I was okay with, I mean, I never, I never did a lot of the things that Josh did. Like mm-hmm. I just kind of kept trucking along and periodically put things in drawers and took them back out again. It's so, it's so interesting. So, so yeah, so you and I connected on so many different levels. Yeah. We weren't at Iowa at the same time, but we'd both been at Iowa. We'd studied, you know, both of us had studied with Marvin, with yeah. Jim Galvin, with Jory Graham, you know, and then you continued to live there. So like, you know, I knew the landscape, right. I knew the city, I knew what that felt like. And then um, I had two older kids, but, you know, we I, we also connected around the fact that like, you know, my two older kids are 18 months apart, your kids are yep. two, two boys. Um, and so even and though... Jewish and, and... Absolutely. I don't know. I think that there's a certain... I love the description of like, I'm the one who tries the door. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have that also. Yeah, you do. You know, like we're both very ambitious in a very particular kind of way. Like you say, like, I didn't really expect to be an author. I don't and think it's I, ambition. I, I think we both stay busy. Like, yeah. I think we just can't sit still. And I, I, it's funny, recently, it has come to my attention recently that I probably have undiagnosed ADHD, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm just, I've also never had a desk job. Like, there's just a certain kind of activity and energy that I have that means that I always, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm like a shark who can't stop swimming or something. Like, I have to always be looking at the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it can be really annoying for the people around me. And it can mean that I leave jobs quickly. It used to mean that I broke up with people very rapidly. You know, like I'm always moving forward. But I think we're very similar in that way. But I don't think of it as ambition. I don't set the goal. It's more yeah. that I want to do the activity. I think that's right. And I think that's that's very similar for me too. Because there's not. it's not like I want to be Jory Graham. Right. Or, you know, it's like as soon as I have five minutes... I either have another child right. or <laughs> I move or I start a new job or I start a new career yeah. or I like, I'm like, Oh, now I'm a doula. Yeah. Uh, you know, now I'm starting a podcast. You, I'm literally sitting here next to a wall that has <laughs> cards on it of projects you have finished that are not published. Yep. I similarly have like 200 un- or something, 150 unpublished picture book manuscripts and several novels sitting in drawers because the, the work gets made. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Okay. And then, you know, because even though I have never published uh, a picture book or a middle grade book, having been raised by my right. mom, yep. um, you know, and then especially when my mom died, you were incredibly helpful to me emotionally, but also in like trying to think about her literary estate mm-hmm. and, you know, what have some insight into that world from a from a professional yeah. perspective. And and if I'm being I was just sitting here thinking about this. If I'm being super honest, I think when we very first met, your career was very far ahead of mine. I think when we very first met, I was a little starstruck mm. that like you knew this poetry world in a way that I had not. I had been so insecure about it and had such a chip on my shoulder about it. 
that you were sort of in that world in a way that I had been afraid to keep trying at and and somehow being friends with you not in a crass way but right, like right. that somehow being friends with you that if Rachel wanted to talk to me about poetics maybe I wasn't a failure at poetry hmm. well I think it's really interesting because I was very jealous of you I feel like I've always wished that I made something that I could give as a gift. <laughs> like my books are not good gifts. I love your books as okay, gifts, but it's no, a, I understand. They're depressing as fuck. And like most people don't like poetry and most people don't read poetry and are just like, oh my God, when can right. like I, I told you the story, but I went to a function recently for the daycare center that mm-hmm. my kids used to go to that I'm like really still involved with. And I love this place so much. And, you know, it was, it was a fundraiser. And so they had an auction and all the stuff. And, and I was like, Oh, do you want me to bring some copies of my mom's books? And they were like, yeah, bring some copies of your mom's book and your books. And I was like, really, really you don't want that. <laughs> and they, they convinced me to bring copies of my, of my new book right. that had just come out. And I got there and I like just gave them like four copies of like my mom's picture books and and then like four copies of like, I don't know, Poetics of Wrongness or Sound, it was, it was probably like Sound Machine or whatever. And once I got there, I realized it was a whiskey and chocolate tasting thing. <laughs> and then they were selling raffle tickets. Right. And people were bought, were winning with these raffle tickets, either a bottle of whiskey oh no, <laughs> or my book. It was awful. Nothing feels so terrible as oh. watching people like win the book and just like their face fall. Like oh. it could have been whiskey, could have been a piece of chocolate. Right. And they would have been like, fantastic. And I just was like, oh my God, like how, how have I come to this? Like it took me 10 years to write this book. And like, I just wanted to go up to the person and be like, just give it back to me. I'll pay you. I'll buy my book back from you. Or like, just throw it in the trash. Like, I'm so sorry. Like I'll buy you a bottle of whiskey. Like it just, it's the worst. It's the worst feeling. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be laughing. No, it's terrible. It's, it's, I want, I want a picture book that I can like give to people and they can be like, thank you. This is so great. I'll, you know, and I still have this experience with my mom's books, which, you know, I, I still have so many copies of them. And so I, I give them away and, you know, people read them hundreds and hundreds of times. Some of them are fantastic books, you know, for a long time I've wanted to write, I mean, I did write a memoir Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks that I wrote a memoir because right. it's like an unmarketable, unsellable, un, you know, I, market well, okay. mem- memoir, but whatever. And I do write prose, but like somehow I'm a poet always, which is good and bad. Yeah. I mean, it is right. And I flip flop back and forth between, I think, which is better, uh, uh, sort of, that there's a way in which, well, this does, the, this takes us into the genre stuff, but like, there's a way in which, having lived in both those worlds in different ways, there's a way in which money, I'm going to regret saying this, but like that, because I don't love money, but money keeps things honest mm-hmm. in a way. Because, because in the arts without money, you have to establish some other sort of currency to stand in that in a world where it isn't about how many books sell or how many people read it or whatever, it has to then become about other things that have always made me really uncomfortable. 
the flip side of that is once money enters the picture, then things can be manipulated and it's an easy currency to manipulate, right? And so you can make a book successful, you can make a career for somebody for a book, you know, and, 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 and I'm not even getting into like what's valuable, like mm-hmm. artistically, like if a book is popular and all the kids love it, even if I think it's terrible, that's a good book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is where working with children is very different. They do not pretend things, you know, if, if they want Dogman or Percy Jackson or the Warriors and, and I show up, they, they have no problem letting me know that <laughs> I am not who they would like to meet. Um, You're not a bottle of whiskey. No, I'm exactly. And so I think it's, it's just an interesting thing of like, in some ways I feel like it's better for art to be art that mm-hmm. there, the, I'm forever endlessly really hard right now trying to get back to the brain that I had when I was eight. Mm. that just wrote and some of some of the you know it's been always been my principle that like I write the words that I'm inclined to write and some of them are to be published and some of them are not to be published but it it, it, the longer you spend in the world of commerce or academia or whatever world you're living in the harder it is to get back to that like playful crafty imaginative brain that is just playing with words because it's fun. And so I feel like that's what I'm always trying to get back to. And the question is like, is it easier to get back to that by getting the money out of my brain? Or is it easier to get back to that by getting the like poetry insecurity craft academia stuff out of my brain? Mm -hmm. They're both, they're both difficult. I mean, so, so one of the things I think is really interesting is that we do in some ways live in these different worlds Mm -hmm. We're both writers, but we really we have different audiences and we have different structures or or what are they called? Like not signposts, but like measures, measures of success, all that stuff. Benchmarks. Thank you. I think your name appears in my books more than (laughs) anyone else's name. It's, it's, it is like a great, great joy of mine. Like I cannot tell you what it means to me that I am part of your brain. You are. And you're like one of my favorite people in the world to call up and be like, okay, can I just read you this poem? Mm-hmm. Can I just read you this poem? And then I I think that maybe in part because there's some space mm-hmm. um, between the worlds. Yeah, I don't know well, if that's why. No, I but, think, I think but, it's important that we're not in competition. Right. I think that's true too, but I think it's, it's, it, it's not just that. No, it's, it's not just there's that. There's something about the way like getting to to do like parallel play with you all these years and talk about our careers and the form of the picture book and what a poem is or like me yeah okay so there's this other thing though too which is and it's very specific for me I don't I but I think everybody has it to a varying degree which is it's not just that it's not just that you bring a different perspective when you comment on something outside your own area of expertise. It's that there's a kind of humility inherent in what I'm going to say, right? So if you show me a poem, and it's a little different with the poetry stuff because I feel like I should speak the language better than I do after all these years. But, um, but like if my husband's a musician and when my husband plays me a song, there's a part of me that feels like it's almost like an, like an, just a girl kind of thing it's like well I don't know anything about music but this is what I think uh-huh. and then often that person will be like that's really smart nobody said that and the it's like it's both that I can I can say a thing that I might not say in my own area of expertise because I can bring that sort of novice brain to it mm-hmm. and I don't feel like I have to say it exactly right or use the right language that I feel that way about 
about that gap is like I'm I I want to I want to think that when you show me a poem I'm bringing a different brain because I haven't read all the things everybody else has and I'm not having whatever this year's craft conversation is in poetry land and I am bringing the I mean I also teach in an MFA program right like I'm bringing the craft of children's writing and a different way sort of different kind of language as I'm thinking about your poem and also I'm comfortable to say things that might sound dumb coming out of somebody else's mouth because I'm not an expert. Well, I think also all that, all that is true. And we have a certain level of like trust and familiarity with each other and a certain kind of like temperament. So you were absolutely critical for me at the, you know, if anybody's read the poetics of wrongness, I just kept trying and trying and trying to end the book. And I kept doing all this stuff. I wrote an essay and then I wrote a different essay and then I wrote a different essay. And then I had a conversation on the phone with Isaac Ginsburg Miller. And then we made a transcript and then we edited the transcript. And I was like, okay, I think I finally got it. I think it's right. I think it's right. I think it's right. And I sent it to you Mm -hmm. and I asked you to read, you know, was this like afterward, you know, or note from the author and you, I mean, I just remember the tone of your voice. I don't remember the exact words you said, but you were I like, was scared. Yeah, you were scared. And you were like, okay, I don't usually say this to you, <laughs> but I don't think you can publish this. I don't think this is right. This isn't working. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, and you basically said, I think you're trying to do something that can't really be done. And, once we had that conversation, I mean, first of all, I'm able to hear things from you that are, would be harder for me to hear from other people. Although other people don't even offer that to me. You know, my editors don't, you know, I don't have that really in, in my life. I don't have it, which is interesting. And once I, and once I got what you were saying and I started to also think about like, Oh, here's why I'm afraid to publish this book, to finish this book, to close it down, you know, to, to have it be closed as opposed to a conversation. That was, that just, that opened up so much for me. First of all, I was able to finish the book. Right. Um, But also I think it, I don't even know where, how far that's going to lead me because it led me to all of these realizations about the podcast and you listen to the podcast all mm-hmm. the time and you will call. And like, <laughs> I like having a podcast that I can listen to and then like actually like call in <laughs> after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I think that there's another thing too, which probably does relate to everything, but sort of sounds like it doesn't, which is, I think you and I are both just really messy. Yeah. And I think that, there's very few things as comfortable if you're somebody who's messy and extra and feels like you're always bringing too much of yourself to every room you go to. When you find somebody who is messy and extra in that way, I hope that's okay for yes, you to say. Yes, definitely. That, 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 but who isn't totally batshit. Yeah. And, and I feel like I've spent my life in, in many circumstances or parties, at weddings that I'll never meet these people again, seeking out the like, the extra messy person on the dance floor and then realizing, oh, this person's wasted and crazy and I don't want to talk to them on this dance floor. That like with you, I think we settled into some sort of a very comfortable, permissive place of like, I'm going to bring my messy self and if you need to hang up the phone, that's fine. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and nothing, I feel like nothing you say would ever push me away and nothing I say would ever push you away. And that's a very rare thing. Yeah. And the idea of having that within a craft conversation, like I don't, I mean, I, that's not true. I do have a few other people in my life that I feel like come close to that, but they don't feel as familiar to me or as similar to me. Right. And you, you've sent me a bunch of, um, you know, stuff in early stages and, uh, you know, I don't know anything about yeah, like what picture books are supposed to be like. Um, but I still feel completely fine. I mean, 99.9% of the time. Yeah, you're always like, very nice. I'm like, no, it's not nice. I just, I'm a fan. Yeah. And I just love what you do. But I'm not at all hesitant to say, I but don't like this. I think I turn to you for the same exact reason, which is that what I am looking for is a not, is somebody from outside what, like, it is still in my head, and this will take us back into crafty stuff, but, but it is still in my head that, like, while I write for children, I always want to be bringing poetry to the page. Mm -hmm. And I worry sometimes that I've gotten so far away from poetry that I don't always stop. I look back at some of my earlier work, and it feels way more interesting and innovative than the things that I'm making right now. Mm. And this is a big part of sort of, I hope, my project for the next year or two is that I want to go back into the whole that sort of being in a world of commercial literature, things that have to sell, things that have to, you know, fit the algorithm or whatever, even if you resist it and resist it and resist it, it's really easy to kind of get closer into that groove. And I feel like my best work is not that way. Mm. And so one of the reasons I send you things is I feel like because you're not in my world, you are going to bring your poet brain to my more commercial or more, you know, my other thing um, and push on those things in ways that will help me hold on to the part of me that is a poet. Well, I think that the thing that I'm best at of all the things I'm very good at is taking anything marketable and making it unmarketable. <laughs> So you can always rely on me <laughs> for that. Um, okay, let's talk about picture books and poetry okay. for a second, okay? So for a long time, you have said this thing, uh, some version of like the poetry brain and the picture book brain are very similar Correct. and very connected. Yeah. And, you know, poets could write good picture books if they set their mind to it and, children's authors children's book authors might want to study poetry absolutely and, and, yep. and learn to write okay talk about that so I did this event years ago at the Pratt Institute that was like maybe my favorite event I ever did in my life where I got I got asked to come in sort of through my poetry world connections and to but to, to read books for young people and to talk about that and I did something I've never done before or since, which is I I mixed my poems, my adult poetry, in with my picture book manuscripts, and then read them without indicating what was what, mm. just because I wanted to see if people could tell, like what's a like. And my poetry always felt like my master's thesis was called the what was it called the story of the girl, the tale of the girl in the flattened world or something, and then my. It turned into a book called The Myth of the Simple Machines that was about like this little girl and these birds and gravity disappears. And like, I feel like looking back, it's really easy for me to see that the poetry was always and and I think I am in some ways arrested in childhood mm -hmm. um, that I am arrested in childhood. I sort of have a childlike brain anyway, and I have always loved books 
adult books, kids books, it doesn't matter, that were sort of mythic in those ways. I love magic. I love fantasy. I love simplicity. Uh, I love accessibility. And, and so sort of those are the things that make poetry and picture books feel similar to me. I, I think that the best poems for me to, mm-hmm. as a reader, the best poems for me have the same narrative and lyrical qualities that picture books do. And I think that the best picture books for me are difficult mm. or confusing or I'm not that's confusing is the wrong word. Have layers to them mm-hmm. that uh, I, I can only think of as poetry. And I feel like all those tools are the same tools. I have this this lecture I do sometimes at, at the program where I teach uh, called the poetry hand the poetry toolbox for picture book writing that, that it really does like you can break it down in in ways that you would never do in a poetry MFA but you can say like this meter will feel this way you know mm-hmm. that sort of this is like <laughs> what does it do when there's a march or a horse galloping across the page you know sort of and and we use them with a much heavier hand children are very different readers and ultimately that to me is the difference is like Picture books are what happens to poetry when you think of a four-year-old reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes poetry, I mean, there's plenty of poets whose poems work as picture books and vice versa. So, And then the other thing is that I, I feel strongly that picture books are the place in commercial work, right? Sort of setting aside art that in the, in the, in the sort of, if you go into a bookstore and you buy a mass-marketed book from one of the big five publishers the likelihood that it will be disruptive and experimental is much greater in a picture book than anywhere else in that bookstore. Mm-hmm. That picture books don't actually have rules. And I have like handouts that I give students of like like different structures and formats for picture books. But the truth is there's nothing you can't do in a picture book. And that's always been true pretty much. And uh, I think becomes it's one of the rare areas of publishing where that becomes more true. The readership is becoming more open, more willing to stretch mm. um, things. And, you know, we go in and out. But if you especially if you look at international stuff like European and, and Asian and African picture books do all kinds of things that we don't do here. They are often much darker or more experimental. So studying it as a form, it's just it's it, it does feel to me like sort of I, I feel like I can sort of see a picture book in any poem and see a poem in any picture book that uh, that I like that there 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 are poems in picture books that I do not like. Right. Yeah. So for me, it has been the place where, you know, I was I was trying last year, two years ago now to work on. I, I had a very, very hard time in the pandemic, both reading and writing and um, I just needed to sell some. Like, I, I was like, I have to sell something. Not for money. I mean, that too. But, like, I just feel like I've been stopped for several years. And I tried. I wanted to write a Hanukkah book. And I tried and tried and tried. And I wrote, like, four failed Hanukkah books. And it was exactly that thing of, like, I'm just going to let go and write a poem. Like, I'm just going to write a poem about Hanukkah. Mm. And I did. And I sent that to my agent. And she was like, okay, this is the book. And... And that book sold for more than any other picture book I've ever sold. And so it's that thing of like, it's this weird space in the world where if you can remember the language of childhood, which is like, that's the hardest thing about this job is like you're writing in a language you don't speak anymore. But if you can tap back into the brain of not knowing grammar or syntax or what words mean exactly, but sometimes what they mean inexactly or how they feel you know, if you're, tr- I mean, you're trying to describe like what it feels like to discover what it is to be a person, mm-hmm. basically. 
not always, but I think the most beautiful, most important picture books do that, sort of hold a kid's hand through discovering something, um, which just feels so much like poetry to me, like words enacting something, you know, words creating shapes, words making music. But why do you even tolerate me? So... I, let's talk about me some more. Yeah. Um, no. It's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> I listen to your podcast I, no, religiously. I just, I'm like listening to you and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm having this, I'm, and we, obviously we've talked about this so many times, but like we haven't really talked about it this way. Like I don't write like my, when I read you my poems mm-hmm. on the phone, mm-hmm. you do like them. I yes. believe you. Um, and you laugh and they're funny and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe you're going to do this. You know? Yeah. Um, but they don't, there's no picture book in those poems. And I think it's the, the, the envy that I have Mm -hmm. is not just that you have something that people really enjoy and then it can be given as a gift and it can make people feel good. <laughs> the, gift, the gift factor for you is really it's interesting. It's really big. It's really big. <laughs> I know. I guess I feel like in some ways I feel like our brains are so similar. Yeah. We're and 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 that sort of way of being in the world and of like feeling like too much and like just like la la la, la, la I have to get it all in here. Um you know, we interrupt each other and we're like, oh, we're doing really well right now, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, but somehow that part of my brain is what my poems are. And your books, somehow, mm. I want some sort of filter, not filter, but like a, like a sieve. Yeah. And I don't. I, I, you know, I always wish like, why, why didn't I write Luets? Right. You know, why didn't I write, you know, what's that Jenny Ophel book? Uh, the, the museum, I'm going to get it wrong. Is it Museum of Accidents? No, that's my book. No, we got <laughs> Department of Speculation. It's similar. Right. I'm just like, wait, I, I, I sort of write, but, but it's not, it doesn't come out like that. And it's. Everything like I don't know I I huh. I and it's interesting. So I'm having a couple of responses yeah. to this, and one is so I work really hard at that. Like maybe the way that you do your meditation practice or your morning pages, yeah. I do revision. Uh-huh. Like I have one mantra, like only one mantra. There's one thing framed above my desk that Thisbe Nissen sort of sent me years ago that she kept above her desk that I keep above my desk. And it is an Isaac Babel quote that says, your language becomes clear and true, not when you can no longer add, but when you can no longer take away. Huh. And that is like the one thing. And I hit this so hard with my students. Like the goal is to winnow. Right. And I am totally a maximalist. I know. And and I am in every other aspect of my life. But for whatever reason, I read, I don't know, like I read too much Creeley in college or something. Like I, I am always trying to take away in a very conscious, it doesn't feel natural to me. It's, it's like it is stripping out, stripping out. When I write fiction, mm-hmm. when I write prose, everything has too many clauses. And my editor is always coming through and being like, you can have one of these three ways of describing the hat, you know, like that, like in fiction, it's like once I open the doors to fiction, like it floods out and it becomes longer and longer. 
but in but in the picture books, which I still think of as poems, it has like it's about winnowing. So why do you tolerate my aesthetics? Because I love to read all kinds of things. And I don't think, I mean, I think Fables and Pedestrians was more discreet. Yeah, well, Fables was supposed to be published, you know, I wanted it to be published as its own book and not as poetry. But, right. You know, but then Wave liked it. Right. And I sort of, I was like, whatever. I don't know. I think you have that part of your brain, too. I think, I don't know. I love your work. I mean, I just love your work. It's expansive and thought like in thinky and but like visceral and human at the same time that it's thinky. And it is that it is maximalist. It's like you're throwing your full self into it. I'm really sick of it. Yeah, you're well, I hear that. In, yeah, I'm done with that. You should write a poem about. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, so. All right. So I'm sick of that. And I really I want to. I want to write something that is going to give people pleasure Mm -hmm. and that is going to... Maybe it's partly this, though. Uh You write about yourself. Yeah. You're your own subject. Yeah. And it would might... Maybe it would feel uncomfortable or wrong... To try, like, in the same way that we're talking about the sort of messy extra factor, right? If what you're trying to put on the page is a representation of Rachel, it would feel untrue if it ended up feeling like some, like, stark, minimalist, translated thing, right? Like, that wouldn't feel like Rachel. Though that's in Rachel, that wouldn't feel like you were bringing yourself to the page. When I read a picture book, I am not my own subject ever. When I read a poem, and and the same thing happens. I don't know, like the couple of times in the last few years where I've written an actual poem, mm-hmm. some of which I've showed you, they're they're exactly. I mean, they're, they don't sound like your poems, but they are messy and full of me and nostalgia and self criticism and thinky stuff and big description, and they go on and on longer than I feel like they should. A picture book centers the child. And I think the thing that makes children's book writing different in, in more than any other is that we are not focused on ourselves. We are focused on literacy and creating a world for children. Mm. And so the world of children's book writing is a world of agents and editors and authors and illustrators, but also, and all the people who work in a publishing house, and also librarians and teachers and parents and grandparents. And there is this sense that like I, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about what I want to say. When I write a poem, I'm just thinking about what I want to say. Mm. When I am writing a picture book, I am thinking about what a four-year-old can hear. Mm. So that is like inherently a winnow, like that is a like an erasure process almost, mm-hmm. right? Like it's a translation. I am taking, if I want to, I want to write a picture book about this conversation and I'm thinking about a four-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old, I have to translate this conversation into not just words they will know, but like the metaphors that will make sense and how much attention they have and what kinds of books they may already have read and what pictures make sense in their lives. And I always want to bring, if you read my picture books, you will find that like they have words like like the inside the slidey diner has the word nefarious in it, mm-hmm. right? Like that that I want to bring them words and images and ideas they haven't already encountered always. That's the part that feels experimental or innovative. 
but I but I have to do it. It's like it's like sneaking a green bean into the smoothie or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm bringing children something they can see. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very different than when you write a poem. And this brings us back to the audience conversation, mm-hmm. right? Like, and this is why I don't like to talk about market, and I, but I do like to talk about reader. That like the audience for the book matters deeply, because like in like human physical development ways, they just are in a different place than an adult reader. Right, and that and and one of the. Th- things that feels safe and like incredibly generative to me in talking to you about craft is that you're one of the few people that I feel like I can talk to about my desire for an audience and my appreciation of audience. And, and this is something I say in my classes, I talk about the difference between storytelling and theater. Right. And, you know, storytelling, you acknowledge the audience is present. It is a community, communal experience mm-hmm. that is about literacy, that is about teaching people who they are, you know, what to think, how to act, how, what to be careful of. Right. Like, it is vital storytelling is vital theater i'm not saying theater is bad and i'm getting more and more interested in theater as i get older but this thing you do where you pretend the audience is not there correct yeah yeah, and yeah it's that's like really this voyeuristic interesting thing i feel like so when i was at iowa and since so much and this is where we get into the like the difference between spoken word right, right, and right. you know the like all this kind of because i'm not really a spoken word poet but I am not a theater poet either. And even on the page, I'm just not. I am thinking about, it's not that I'm thinking about a reader, but there's something, this this like weird, like poetry is like overheard. Yeah. And we're going to pretend that there's no audience. Like this drives me bananas. No, it drives me crazy. And I want a general reader well i think there's this fear that if you respect the reader you are pandering in some right and that's just not the same thing and the difference is intention right like that like i am thinking about and i am always thinking about one reader and that reader is myself but the reader that i am thinking about is eight or six or ten right i am writing for laurel snyder but i'm writing for laurel snyder at a very different point in my life in order to get back to her and understand her and imagine her I have to do these deep nostalgia dives, but I also have to spend a lot of time with a five-year-old because I don't really remember what it feels like to be five. I think I do. I have snapshots. And then I have to sort of check in with the kids who can bring her back to me in order to then speak a language that will actually serve the readership more generally. It's, it, it, it's, it's, I, I've spent a lot of time over the years trying to figure this out like because I know a lot of people who think a lot about the readership mm-hmm. and they do... like. A friend of mine was just saying the other day that she's been surveying kids because she's got this amazing series that's going to be coming out. Um, but she really wanted to check in with like early chapter book or chapter book age readers. And so she'd been doing all that. And I was just like, I can't like the minute I do that, I lose the the discreet like I did lose the self. I lose the the individual voice that I have that I that I want to speak. I am speaking for and to myself as a child. I am having to sometimes use other people's language. But again, like in a much vaguer, like I like to hang out in a preschool for a few hours. 
because strange syntactical things happen mm -hmm. and words get mispronounced or misunderstood or like it's or sometimes I, this sounds absurd, but like sometimes I spend time in my house when I'm alone, like sitting under the dining room table with the the dining room table cloth over it or like in the middle of a staircase. I will just because I want to grasp the feeling of being a child. Mm -hmm. That's been the greatest permission of this career has been permission to not grow up like permission. It is it's in the same way that like I'm allowed to buy, like eat ice cream and write it off on my taxes if I'm writing an ice cream book. Right. <laughs> like I'm allowed to sit under the dining room table and not be a crazy person because I'm writing about a kid who's sitting under the dining room table. And I have to remember where the dust falls on my nose and what it feels like to, you know, creep under the tablecloth and have it brush my hair or have the cat join me. Um, that 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 checking in with myself is how I respect the reader. Mm. But it's different than wanting to express the self. Right, right. Okay, so you said earlier on, and I've been hearing you say this in the past day, that you want to get back to something. Yeah. So what's what what is say more about that? Like where do where so are you? So I actually yeah. I did a talk. I I was supposed to do a talk, a Zoom talk during the pandemic about world building. And this is one of my the, my current chip on the shoulder always is that I teach a like I teach a field that I didn't actually study and don't. So I'm I'm perpetually having to learn the craft of fiction. Fiction is very hard for me. Um, I love working on picture books because I feel like I get to use my poet brain. But I got asked to do this world building talk in the middle of the pandemic when I was making no money and I was looking for any pennies I could find. And I said yes and I signed the contract. And then the world just got worse and worse. And by the time it was time to kind of give this talk, I realized I, I felt like it was bad. Like it felt cruel hmm. to bring any kind of critical demands or sort of like expectations to a bunch of people who are, it, it was from, it was for SCBWI, which is a children's book world sort of organization for like aspiring authors. Mm. I was like, the last thing I want to do is go to a bunch of people who are struggling to publish and be like, work harder, do more. And so I wrote this craft talk instead. I wrote to the people and I said, can I change the subject? And they said, yes. And so I ended up doing this hour long talk called the craft of daydreams, which is effectively meditation, <laughs> but like that basically, uh -huh. well, I, I, it was like, it was like how to use like walking, how to use sleep, how to use like sort of play. Like I spent a lot of time working in my dollhouse, like in the pandemic, like playing with my dollhouse and then sort of started out of that writing what I hope will be the next book I write about a little girl in a dollhouse, essentially. I realized that, and I think the pandemic really assisted me in this, this realization of like when the world goes away, and you're not on tour and you're not meeting with your agent and you're not, you know, and you're locked in your house and your garden and taking walks in the evening. And my family and I, we, we started doing these midnight walks where we would walk down to this creek near our house at midnight because that was when no one was out because we were being so careful about the COVID. And so I wrote this whole lecture that was basically like how to how to use all of these things essentially that I realized was like, oh, I'm basically writing a lecture of like what my best friend Susan and I did when we were eight years old. Mm. And I just feel like that's become my main focus right now of like in a world where obviously I still need to make a living, but I want my books to be, I don't ever want to repeat myself. And it feels like the child brain is the part that knows how to learn new things hmm. and think about things in new ways. And so while it's also true that when I read a beautiful book that is different than a book that I have been reading, like I, I, it also wakes something up in me. 
Um, poetry does that. Not all sorts of things. Movies do. I mean, all sorts of things. Music does that. But I feel like for me, the most important one, and because I write for children, it makes sense to, to just really, really essentially regress. Mm. Um, to get back to that place that discovers and fails and does you know, a messy, sloppy job at stuff. I mean, it's just so interesting because you have or have not read The Artist's Way. I haven't. Yeah, I mean, it, so there's there's two main practices that you're supposed to do. The, you, every day you, you wake up and you do morning pages and it's just, you just write three pages. It's not mm-hmm. an amount of time. And I have been really clear with myself and with um, my students or, you know, the, the people in the group that I'm facilitating don't reread them. Don't mind them. Don't mm-hmm. go back to them. They are wasted. Yep. We have to get back to, yep. you know, and it's really like Julia Cameron who wrote the book. She really, she, she sees all people as blocked creatives who are in recovery. So yes. That's a 12 hundred percent. That's exactly what I believe. And then every week you're supposed to go on an artist date. You take yourself on an artist date and it's, you, you do it alone and the thing that people misunderstand is that, like, first they're like, oh, okay, I guess I have to go to a museum. No. The artist date is to basically... Be ident- alone, to be with yourself. But to do something that you found... To regress. To to do something that you found pleasurable as a child yeah. or that you would find pleasurable now. So for some people, it is... Maybe it's going to a museum. But for, for most people, it is not going to a museum. Right. It's like sitting under the table. It's lying down and doing nothing. It's watching too much TV. It's But not in the way that we watch yeah, TV so to that's distract what I was say. ourselves. So I have this manuscript that um, will be out in a few years, though we, we need an artist for it. It doesn't have actually have a title right now. It was originally called Work and Play. But it's about, it's a series. It actually is sort of based on Mattia Harvey's swivel lines. Hmm. It's The idea is you have a spread and... So like the first spread, I don't, I'm not going to try to remember the text, but the first, and it's, it's not rhyming, but it's, it's sort of metered. The, the first page is a ballerina dancing. Like, do you see the ballerina dancing? And then it says, says like, she does, she does this so that, and then you turn the page and it says, and then, and it shows her fishing, like sort Mm. of, she's dancing so that she can fish. But then on the other side of the fishing page is a man swimming and it's like, and this guy is swimming and then you turn the page and it's like, and you see him in his restaurant the next day. And the whole idea is like everybody contains multitudes and and some of those multitudes we call work and some of those multitudes we call, like mm. some of those identities are working identities and some of them are playing identities. But there's this this other thing, which is sort of when we are mindful in our activities, in our movements, in our behaviors, it's really hard to sort out. Like the, the person who likes to, who dances for a living and likes to fish but but there might very well be somebody who fishes for a living and loves to dance, mm-hmm. right? That I, I find that re- the idea of just the, like physical activity of moving through the world really interesting. And I think it's this, I mean, I think it's the same exact sort of thing, right? That like we're trying to see the moment we're in differently and kind of defamiliarize it. And play, you know, how do we play? And, and not, and exact, I think you're right. Like, I mean, there's all different ways that we get blocked as creatives, you know, or yeah, but I, 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 I feel like yeah. I didn't fully explain. I well, feel you like did, I, but I, go ahead. The problem is we're in this mode now of play and work, where where work is the hard thing and play is recovery. Yeah, and play is usually consumption. That's right. Right. 
so, and usually passive. Correct. Right. So to me, television watching doesn't fit that model, mm-hmm. not because there's not a way to meaningfully watch television, but because I have now programmed, like I can only watch, so I, I, I'm a terrible Bravo reality TV junkie. I can watch eight hours of Vanderpump Rules mm-hmm. and I can drink a lot of wine and I can take a bubble bath. Like these are the things that I do when like the day has been too much, right? And I really want to get out. I think this is a big part of it. I haven't said this out loud before, but like I want to get out of this mode where it's like these are the things that I do that are unpleasant that I have to do. And these are the ways I recover by completely crashing and consuming. And I'm not somebody who's into meditation and yoga and like all that kind of stuff. But I want to find those third things or or redefine the work and the work and play I yeah. do so that they feel more. Well, your garden seems like yeah. the third thing. The dollhouse yeah. seems like a third thing. Um, I think the conversations between us, even though yeah. they're, they're not alone, you know, they they feel like a third thing. They I mean, they really feel like. They're neither work nor play. Right. Um, they are creative. But the writing, and I think we share this, yep. now feels like work. Yes. And I want, that's what I'm trying to say. When I sit under the dining room table, when I take a walk at midnight, what I'm trying to find is the is the child brain that remember, like it used to be, one of my illustrators, Emily Hughes said this, the woman that does the Charlie and Mouse books, was saying she has to write with a pencil. It's a tactile experience that she has that reminds her of what it felt like to be a kid because when you were a kid, you had to get things out, which mm-hmm. is different than getting things down, yes. right? I want to get back to the brain that gets things out and away from the part of me that treats this as work. And I've had to do this multiple times. I wrote Orphan Island, which is a novel that I had that came out a bunch of years ago, out of a moment just like this, where I had gotten to a place where I couldn't do it anymore and I didn't want to do it if it was going to feel like work. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just I'd rather go do other I'd rather work in a coffee shop I'd rather do I'm a really good waitress I did that for 15 years like I'd rather do other kinds of work than turn the thing that I love into labor in that in that I love labor but mm-hmm. like into that into that kind of work and and Orphan Island came out I wrote Orphan Island entirely longhand having told my agent I think I'm done I'm never gonna write another book again but if I do it's gonna be something just for me but I feel like I have this cycle where like every five or 10, whatever it is years, I have to get back to that eight year old self. Yeah. And, and, and meditation for me, which is a sort of relatively new thing really works for me because it's not like watching television. Although I, since I've begun to really meditate seriously or playfully, mm-hmm. I really should say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, you know, regularly, when I watch television, it it's different. It's not mindless in the same way. It's but it is. It does feel more playful. I mean, mm-hmm. you you know, I love television, not reality television. Yeah, no, but no. Um, your television is better than my television. I love television so much. But but yeah, it's there's something that happens for me. I mean, there's there's two things. One, it is totally unproductive. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for me to unlearn my addiction to having to something to show for myself at the end of the day. You know, you and I both like talk so much about like, oh, and then I'm still in my pajamas and I watch this. Yeah, but I'm really still in my pajamas. I mean, like, you know what? You say that, but you've published 30 books. Yeah, but and and I'm just saying both of us are extremely. Pro- shush 
Both of us are extreme. <laughs> Gin- Ginsburg's like, it's done. We're done. I know. Maybe yeah, just we for a maybe should, We're almost done. We maybe should finish soon. Yeah. Okay, so I think, you know, we both are, whatever we like to think about ourselves, we are very productive people. We've done a lot of stuff, and we we each have different ways yeah, of, I think that's of trying to, you know, C.A. Conrad was like, don't turn yourself into a factory. Right. You know, and I think that that's been, I, I am a hard worker, and I love being a hard worker. There's something about meditation and the practice of regularly sitting down and trying not to think about figure something out yeah you know and doing something with my brain that's just yeah I think I don't think it's that I'm I don't think it's that we're different I think that my timeline is different than yours I really do particularly when I finish a novel when I finish a novel there is usually like a two or three month window where I accomplish Almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And I really do. Like, it'll be like three o'clock and I know the kids are going to be home from school soon. And so I like jump up to take a shower because I've literally been watching like old West Wing episodes. But all I day. feel like that's what I do, too. I, I can't go back and l- I mean, there. Yes, I can be like, OK, that weekend was when I went to blah, blah, blah. And I wrote for like 12 yeah. hours a day. But other than that, I don't know when I wrote these books. No, I, and I have the same thing. I think for me, the main the main thing about work is I know the reason I will not ever stop is I know that I am not well when I don't make work. It doesn't have to be writing. Mm-hmm. If I found another project that in the same way that the garden consumed me during the lockdown year, like if I found another project that consumed me and where I felt like at the end of the day I had done something I could stop writing it's just that I've never found that other thing mm-hmm. besides parenting I mean that was the thing is like spending all day with my kids did feel like something right writing feels like something and interacting with humans feels like something so I could open a coffee shop or a bar and run the coffee shop or a bar and I think I'd probably be fine the, the problem for me is that just to sit around with no no labor ultimately leads to me being in a really dark place. And I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's just like some people have to work out. Some people, you know, have to run 10 miles a day. And if, if at the end of the day I, somebody says, what did you do today? I can't say something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, it's, I, it, it's not that they're judgment. It's just I, I just feel awful. Okay, we have two choices. Mm-hmm. We can take the dog across the street for yappy hour, mm-hmm. and then we can come back. And record for like another 15, 20 minutes about anything that we forgot. Mm-hmm. We can end right now. Mm-hmm. What I love about what we did do was that it wasn't what I expected, which seems exactly right Correct. to, I mean, part of what I wanted to have to, to share with listeners was this is what it feels like to talk to you on the phone. And that yeah. relationship. Yeah has been utterly sustaining for my creative process and my creative work and all of my books. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I thank you in my books, but like nobody really knows what that means. And I feel like it's like if, if people want to know like the secret or the trick or the whatever, I would say like everybody needs a Laurel Snyder. (laughs) Like, and, and I, and I don't, and I think that you're not, primarily a poet that you 
don't live in the same place as me, even though I miss you so much and Mm -hmm. I want to spend time with you. Like there are all these factors of difference and similarity that somehow, I don't know, like, like, and that it's out. It's also, we, we never were in school together. Here's what I think. I think no matter what we, I'm really glad we did this. Yeah. I am glad that we had some conversations or said some things we maybe haven't quite said before. I I think that there's no way this podcast this is why we were both nervous. <laughs> there's no way this this episode can capture the thing that it it actually is trying to capture. So I think maybe it's better to say let's end it mm-hmm. and just say like this is an inadequate representation but like but a representation. And the other thing I'll say is and I this is cuz I got to throw them in everywhere. Um, I'm a little obsessed with Jason Isbell, the uh, the singer-songwriter. And he, was it was this Isbell recently said, yeah, that um, when he goes in to record a song for the first time, they never practice it before they go in to do the recording session because he said you can only play a song once the, f- like first, you can only play a song the first time once. Uh-huh. And so what you're trying to capture is not, a rehearsed like the, the the when you go to play a live show, you're playing a song you've played a million times before, but that a recording he thinks should be capturing the discovery of something, like like figuring it out. Um, I think if we walk to the park and we come back in 15 minutes, we will have thought about what we're gonna say for the next 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to practice it, so let's just leave it. I love you so much. I love you so much. Okay, let's talk. I'll be sitting with my This has been episode 118 with Laurel Snyder. Many thanks to Chronicle Books, Walden Pond Books, and all the publishers who send me and Commonplace patrons amazing books. Thank you to Laurel Snyder, Christine LaRusso, and Lee Sugar. Thank you to all our Commonplace patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to folks who've signed up for Commonplace School classes. Thank you to each and every one of you who sends messages of support and encouragement. And always, always, thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. When these branches get heavy, like this here song I like singing in some other key. This is the thing that I often, this is the thing that I, I keep saying like, this is the thing that I say, but this is the thing that I say.